recite our text this morning. Um, our sermon text is found in Acts uh, 27, 14 to 15, and 18 to 32. It says, Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short term, time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that, they would be, that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. This is God's word. Uh, please join me in prayer. Dear God, your word is quick and powerful. God, it cuts us and it just shows us exactly what we need. I pray that your Holy Spirit is here and working in great ways this morning. I pray for Pastor Kyle as he speaks, Lord, that you would speak through him and, um, and just bless him as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Happy New Year again. So good to see everybody. Um, what a great time of year to celebrate the resurrection of Christ um, and the hope that we have in him, a new year. I hope that you all enjoyed your, your nights last night, didn't stay up too late. <laughs> um, I went to bed nice and early because I'm over 30 now, <laughs> so I don't watch the ball drop anymore. <laughs> but um, I wanted to let you all know, too, we have an exciting time of year coming up. It's our two-year anniversary in January. Um, we, we launched our church in uh, January of um, 2015, I think it was, and um, we're going to have a, like a vision type of party celebration at that, at that service. So I hope that you all can be there. That's going to be the fourth Sunday. Um, so that's going to be kind of like more of our vision for the year to come um, and just a celebration together. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have lots of food and it'll be a really good time. So I hope that you can all be there. And, um, and welcome this morning. We've finished our, our Advent series and we're entering back into our study of the book of Acts. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, you'll notice that we're pretty much almost done with it. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and we're on chapter 27. 
Acts is really about the earliest Christianity. So if you really want to know what Christianity is, where it came from, how it started, Acts is one of the um, best books to read about that and about the, how the church began and how it spread all across the world. So it's, it's really about that, her origin and her mission. The last six chapters of the book of Acts really could be called the trials of Paul or the sufferings of Paul. He's in and out of one harrowing situation after another, um, from trials to life-threatening situations. It's just a bad experience all around for Paul, so, so we think, or so it seems on the surface. So he's in and out of these things. We see him leave the Ephesian elders. This was many chapters ago. Um, in tears, do you remember this? Um, he leaves the church that he helped begin, and he had established leaders and elders to, to pastor that church, and now he's leaving, and they're all um, crying because they know that they'll never see him again, and that's actually true because he ends up being um, executed by Nero later on in life. But he's arrested, imprisoned, one trial after another, in and out of all these different councils, trying to determine if he's really a criminal or not. We finally see him with the king. You remember this? King, king uh, Herod Antipas. And he, he decides this man isn't guilty of anything, but Paul appeals to Caesar. And the Bible actually says that they would have let him go because there was really no grounds for them to hold him. But because he appealed to Caesar, he had to be sent to Rome. So off to Rome, they send him. Paul was convinced that God had called him to bring the gospel to Rome, and that was the unfortunate way in which he brought it there, in chains. But off to, go, off to Rome he goes, and this is really the context of our passage this morning. He's put on a ship, bound for Rome, and heads into the heart of the sea. To a nor'easter, as we call him around here, a northeaster with great hurricane force winds. So bad, they're in this for 14 days, that experienced sailors are, are hopeless that they'll even live. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here and consider this. Have you ever been bombarded by one trial after another? Seemingly unrelated. Like, how are all these bad, unrelated things happening to me all at the same time? This is kind of like Paul's situation. He's, he's in prison, arrested, on his way to Rome, and wouldn't you know it, the ship runs in to a life-threatening hurricane. A hurricane so terrible that experienced sailors want to jump off the side of the boat. That's how bad it is. So Paul and company are in this storm for 14 days. Everyone present, except for one, the inexperienced sailor, has lost all hope, and they begin to panic. Right? This, this morning's sermon really is about the storms of life. Because we face them. We faced them last year. We might face them this coming year, whether they be small or great. Maybe you're going through them right now. But you can't help but see that illustration when you consider this passage. This passage really is about how to endure through the storms of life, what to see in them, why are we going through them. So I want to make some observations about this event. And it seems to me that it can provide us with some direction and peace in the storms when we face them in our lives. Now, I've made three observations, and this is really going to be the heart of our sermon this morning. The promise through the storm, the confusion of the storm, and the companion in the storm. The promise through the storm, the confusion of the storm, and the companion in the storm. Let's look at that promise. There's a promise that God gives to us as his people when we endure the storms of life. 
There's really only one way I know how to navigate through difficult times while maintaining a sense of peace or patience or hope or joy. And that is to consider that for the Christian, there is a promise through every trial, no matter how great or small. That all suffering for the Christian bears with it a promise from your faithful Heavenly Father. Isn't that great news? The promise, I think, is twofold. Number one, it's that all storms are for our good. And number two, that they work in us godliness. That's the promise. When you go through the storms of life, the guarantee for the Christian is that they are for our good and that they work in us godliness. I want to unpack that a little bit more for you. No matter what the trial or the difficulty, we always have this guarantee this in, this tri- in trials of life. Now, Paul received this guarantee himself, and we can see it right in the text. Look at verse 22. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. This is Paul speaking. So how is Paul garnishing faith and courage in the midst of this intense, difficult trial in his life? He says, not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me imagine this, and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. So here is Paul believing the promise of God, that God has made a promise that there is a purpose in that storm, and that he believes God in that storm. Paul tells the crew and the passengers two times to take up courage. Take up your courage. And he didn't do this by pointing inward. We got some military men, and we got, I think, an army man. And uh, do we have any Navy people? We have a fisherman. I know that. He's not here this morning. Right? He didn't say something like, you know, like these kind of one-liners, these quips that we hear from politicians, like, hey, you know, this is a bad time, but together we can, right? Wasn't that the governor of Massachusetts? That was his one-liner. Together we can. All right, let's make this ship great again. It's coming apart. Let's bound it with some ropes, and let's make it great. We can do this, guys. Or, you know, man of the ship, we are stronger together, right? You don't hear these words. And, you know, it's not, he doesn't also remind them of, the fundamentals of seamanship. Remember your training. This is what you were trained for. He doesn't spur them on, take hope in, your, in yourselves, right? Paul tells the, the, the crew to take courage in the word of God, the promise of God. It seems clear from the story that no one listened to him either. <laughs> like, whatever, dude. You know, like, I don't know who you're talking to, but our ship's falling apart. So they're all in a frenzy, but not Paul. Paul has a calm, has a peace. And so should we, friends. Because there's a promise of God in your trial. You say, well, God doesn't promise me, though, that he's going to take me out of my trial. Because sometimes people die. Sometimes sicknesses don't go away. I didn't receive a, a promise from the angel that that would happen. That's very true. But there's a different sort of guarantee in our suffering, that is true. A promise for the child of God. And it is that suffering, whether we see it in this life or the next, is for our good. And the question is, 
do we, like Paul, believe God? Because that's what he said. I believe God, so I'm going to take courage. So do we, like Paul, really believe God when he says in Romans 8.28 that I do work all things together for the good to those who love me and who are called according to my purpose? Do you believe that or not? That will give you hope in the midst of trial, won't it, friends? We see this narrative all, all over Scripture too, don't we? I mean, this is the story of the Bible. Jacob, you remember Jacob? Conniving weasel, right? Cheats his brother. Um, then he cheats his future father-in-law to, right, to get, to get um, a bunch of sheep. Right? This is the kind of guy he is. He's not a good dude. He's, he's a liar, basically, and he's kind of a weasel. But, but he ends up fathering, becoming the father of 12 sons who eventually would lead to the birth of Jesus Christ himself. Jacob, became, if you remember who he is, who did he become? Israel. His name was changed to Israel. Jacob, Jacob's son, Joseph, no different. J, J, Joseph was the spoiled one of the group. He was kind of a mo- mama's boy. He, the, he was the youngest. He was the favored child. And by the way, if you favor your children, you're going to mess up your other ones. It's just true, right? Um, but this happens with Joseph. He ends up spoiled and a bit kind of like unaware of people's feelings and kind of happy that he's given so much attention. But, but his brothers, what happens? They become bitter and angry. They want to kill him, but they're like, no, let's not do that. That's going a little bit too far. Let's just sell him into slavery. Okay, good, good idea. So that's what they do. And they bring bloody clothes back to the dad, right? Remember this? He, he was eaten. Now, we don't know what happened to him. Dad, sorry. Can we have his colorful coat? And this is what happens. And what happened? J- Jacob, uh, excuse me, Joseph, throughout his life, throughout his experiences, in and out of prison, he's falsely accused of sexual assault. Remember this? And he ends up being the second in command of Egypt. God works things together for the good to those who love him. And you remember that famous passage in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So friends, when we face the trials of life, there is a good. And the, 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 the trouble that we have, I think, as Christians, is we don't always see it. We don't always know what that good is. It can elude us sometimes. And dare I say that sometimes we might not even know until we get on the other side to glory and God reveals it to us. But again, the question is, do we really believe God or not? Because we have a model in Paul that when God spoke deliverance, that Paul, I have a purpose in this. I'm going to rescue you. This is for, you, for your good. God promises you the same. Do you believe it, friend? And that's what we have to ask ourselves. The story of the Bible is God using evil. I mean, isn't that the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is that we have train wrecked everything that God has given to us. We have rebelled against him. We have sinned against him from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve. But God ends up rescuing us through his Redeemer, the Son. He turns Eve. This is what God does. And why would it be any different in our lives, in the microcosm of our life? It's not different, friend. It's the same. It's the same with Job. You remember Job, same story. King David, we see that all throughout his life. And even Christ, unjustly accused, murdered on a cross, and God used that to rescue humanity. Have you not seen this to be, this is elementary. Look, take away the Bible. 
Take away faith in Jesus Christ. Take away all of it. And we still know this to be true. How many people, how many people know that if they got everything they wanted at 18, that they'd be in trouble? Right, me. I would have married the wrong person. God bless her. She happens to say she's bad, but she would, have, she would have been the wrong person for me. I would have been in the wrong job. I would have, you know, all of these different things that would have happened to me. But, but God said no. He closed the door. And you know what that was for me? A trial. It was suffering. It was loss. And I grieved those things. But, you know, I have the advantage of looking back 18 years later and saying, wow, I'm so thankful that, that God has directed. He used some evil for good. Amen? And that's what God does. You know, the things that you pine for, some of us might be embarrassed about them. We, we kind of all shared them collectively, like in a small group. <laughs> so we've come to see clearly that, that, God, that, that life is like this. That we don't always see the end from the beginning. That's a kind of a natural principle of life. But we have the advantage of knowing that this isn't just kind of a natural principle of life. This is the way God works. This is the way God orchestrates creation. Because of the cross, now hear this, every evil intention, every trial, every suffering will be reversed. That's the promise. All sick, sickness and sin and death and all the evil that you see will be reversed and transformed to a world without end. You see, that's the promise. Do we believe it? God's, God's purpose for our life is not to insulate us from suffering. His own son died at the hands of evil men. God's purpose in life is not, in our lives, is not to insulate us from suffering. It's to bring us to glory through suffering. See? That's the message of Scripture. And that's the good guarantee for his kids. But secondly, he promises us something else good, and that's godliness. That's the promise of God for suffering. Godliness. In the, in the children, if you're a child of God and, you work, and you're going through suffering in your life, he's moving you to sanctification, to holiness. That's his purpose in it. Um, read Luke 21 with me. This is the same author as the book of Acts. Luke writes of Jesus Christ in verse 16. Actually, Jesus is speaking here. He says, you will be betrayed by parents, by brothers, by sisters, by relatives, by friends, and they will put some of you to death. Oh, this is not a good line, Jesus. You're not selling your, you know, like you got to preach more prosperity, man. You know, like something's good got to come. But this is what Jesus says. Some of you will be put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now hold on a second here. Did you guys trip over something in this passage like I did when I read it? How do you understand that not a hair on your head will perish, but some of you will die? Right? Jesus, did you make a mistake? <laughs> That's what you kind of think that. But verse 19 gives us the answer. Stand firm and you will win life. Trust in God. Stand firm and the suffering that you endure right now will bring you life. It will bring you an amazing life in the suffering. Now that's incredible. When you believe God in the midst of tragedy, Dr. Keller says amazingly, you win back your soul. Because oftentimes in life we suffer because something else or someone else owns our soul. 
They own it. They're the, the master of our hearts. And when we lose that thing, it destroys us. You see, uh, might I even add, in our own lives, when we become sick or we're afraid of our own lives and we're despairing, could I suggest to you this morning, is, there, is it a possibility that we, love the, that we love this life more than the life to come? That we love the people around us more than the God in heaven that saved us? Now, please don't misunderstand me. God expects us to love each other. He expects us to grieve when we lose each other. But there is a difference between despairing and grieving. You see? And friends, when we trust in God, it brings life. When the Lord is the Lord of our heart. Suffering can wake us up to our greatest need, can't it? To be owned by the Lord. Suffering has a way um, of sometimes either making us bitter or angry at God or pushing us to dig deeper with Jesus and heal with him. And that's the godliness that's worked in us. That's the promise that life can come to us through it. Amen? Stand firm in your suffering, and you will have life. That's the promise. Now there's a confusion here. This is our second point. There's some confusion in the storm, a tension, a paradox that has to exist if we're going to understand suffering and if we're going to make it out of it with courage in it. You see? There's a tension. There's, a, there's a, 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 almost a seeming contradiction, but it's actually a paradox. I want to look at this confusion that we might be able to, to, that you might have about it. In verse 22, let me remind you again. Paul says to the sailors, Take courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship. Last night, remember the angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must, underline must, you must stand trial before Caesar, and God, underline God, has graciously given, underline given, God has given you the lives of all who sail with you. This is a divine plan, is it not? God has graciously, Paul's told by an angel from God that it has been determined by God, by divine decree, that, the sh that no one on that ship is going to die and that Paul is going to Rome. God has graci graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you, he says. Now, the word grace, if you don't know what that word means, it's an undeserved favor from God. It's a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we accomplish. If I gave you a gift of, you know, I don't know, a $50 gift card to Applebee's, and I said, here you go, here's a gift for you, Can, that'll be $50. It's no longer a gift, right? You bought a gift card from me. You worked it. <laughs> I'm not going to trick you. You guys all know that. A gift is an, a, a, a favor that, is, that has no expectations. It's free. So, this, so grace in the Bible is something God does for us on our behalf. It's not something that we work. Isn't that incredible? So when God says we're saved by grace, that we're rescued from our own sin, God's wrath for our sin, we're saved by grace, it means that God does the work for you. That he pays the price for you that you deserve to pay. So just like this, though, they were gracious. God was graciously going to rescue these sailors and these different people on the ship, including Paul, by his own power. It was his choice. The angel tells Paul, too, you must stand trial. 
you must stay on trial. This is a very interesting word. The word must, must in Greek, it's D-E-I, right, day. It means that he was under the necessity of it happening. It had to happen. It was under the necessity of happening. How can anything in life have a guarantee like that? Nothing's certain, right? Is, 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 are, are things really predetermined? Actual, like something that has to happen? God is, the message of scripture is that God is absolutely sovereign and he determines the end from the beginning. Nothing happens in life, no, no, no matter what the choice, no matter how minute the decision, nothing happens without God's predetermined plan being involved in it. Okay? Not the smallest leaf can fall off a tree in the deepest forest without God's mighty sovereignty working that event. It's just the message of the Bible. Some theologians call this word must. Revelation chapter 1 1 reiterates it a divine inevitability. If you recall, Revelation 1 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And if you know what the book of Revelation is about, it's about the return of Christ. It's about God set, setting up his kingdom and ending evil. What, what, what would you think if Revelation 1 1 said something like, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, what might take place? That wouldn't give us any hope. Might. <laughs> you mean Satan might win? Right? God, being unchanging and all-powerful, decrees, and nothing can interfere with that decree. It's important that God is unchanging, because if he's changing, he could say, you know what, about that Jesus returning thing, forget it. I changed my mind. I don't like you people. If God changes like we change, he could do that. What, 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 we need more than that, though, because if God potentially is unchanging, but he's not all-powerful, he could intend on doing all of these things, but some mightier force could intercept, could block him, right? So it's important that God has all power, but also that he never changes. So be, because in Scripture God is both all-powerful and never changing, when God says these things must they, they take place, that's the anchor of our hope. That's why the word hope in Scripture means um, a confident expectation that something of necessity has to happen. So when I say I hope this, this object falls when I, when I let go, what do I mean? I know it's going to fall. That's what the word hope means in Scripture. It's more, it's more of a certainty, you see? If, if, if God was not all-powerful, if he changed, then we would have no hope. Paul says to these men, don't be afraid because God has said that we must live. There's no confusion here, right? This is simple. What are you talking? This is not confusing. You might disagree with it, but I think you might at least follow my logic. That's not confusing. But look at verse 30. In, in an attempt to escape, did you notice that it's at the end? In an attempt to escape from the ship, all the sailors are freaking out, okay? They're going to die. They think that they're going to die. They don't believe a word Paul is saying. So the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So they're trying to sneak away. <laughs> then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. In other words, they're going to die if they leave. Well, hold on a second. I thought 
the angel just told Paul, none of them were going to die. But now Paul is saying, if they leave, they're going to die. Do you, do you see the confusion? Do you see the tension? The situation, terrifying and dire, the, the sailors decide to bail. Paul says, if you do that, you're dead. God had already promised that none of them would die. That it was a divine inevitability that these men would be saved. What does it matter what they do if the decision has been divinely decreed? Does God decide or do our choices matter? What is it? Why not just jump in the water, go for a swim, <laughs> have a margarita? God, you know, they just told us God, does it, what does it matter? Does God decide or do our choices matter? And the answer is yes. The, promises, the promise of God does not negate our responsibility to choose. Okay? That might be a paradox in your mind. You might not understand how that works fully, but the Bible teaches both. We have a responsibility to work and act, but the, but the Bible says that God is completely in control. Both are true at the same time. Lorraine Bettner said this, God does not simply decree the end, but the means to the end. See? So, God does not just say, I'm going to save man from their sin. He decrees the means to that end, too. That means that we have to put faith in Jesus. That we have a choice to make. To believe or not believe. Both exist. Did God's promise mean everyone on the ship could just go to sleep or go for a swim? Certainly not. There are seven things. If these guys left, they were the sailors. They knew how to keep the ship together. They needed to stay on the boat. There were seven things. I don't know if you noticed this. I, I, I drew them out of the um, text for us that they did, that these sailors did, which saved their lives. They, they sheltered behind an island. I don't know if you noticed that. They, these guys were smart sailors. They, they knew what they were doing. They held the, the hull together with ropes. I don't know how they pulled that off. They slowed themselves down with an anchor. They dumped cargo. Then they dumped um, some important equipment that they needed to lighten the ship, right? They took soundings to measure the sea depth so they wouldn't crash into rocks. And they, they, we didn't get to this part in the story, but later on, Paul says, we need to eat because we don't eat, we're going to die, right? So they ate. So did God save them or did their ingenuity and planning? Yes, God does not just ordain the ends, but the means to the ends. Do you see? And we know this as Christians. We have to, this has to be the case. I'm going to explain that more in a second. But we, we, know, we know this as Christians. Imagine if you've been sick. Imagine if you had a tumor or cancer or something life-threatening. right? And then you, you went to see a doctor or a surgeon, and they prescribed some medication or some surgery, and your life, your life gets saved. As Christians, what do we do? We say, well, I'm so glad that the doctor was here to save me because God was apparently taking a nap. We don't do that. We say, oh, thank God that he rescued me. Now, the surgeon could say, wait, wait a minute, I did it. Well, no, hold on. God doesn't just ordain the ends, but the means to the ends. So we give great praise to God for his rescue of us and also his enabling people to be part of the process. You follow me? We might make this mistake in presuming that if God is totally in charge, that it doesn't matter what we do. That it's just going to happen anyway. But it does matter what we do. 
Or we might presume the, the opposite, that our, if our decisions do affect outcomes, that God just isn't in control at all, that everything just is kind of up for grabs. But God is in control, and our decisions do matter. God is completely in control and determines everything, yet we are responsible for our choices at the same time. Acts 2.23 this is perfectly illustrated right here. Listen to this. The man was handed, this is, this is talking about Jesus Christ. The man was handed over, Jesus, to you by God's deliberate plan. You see that? No, make no mistake. This was God's choice. The man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Did you see that? Right in the same sentence. This was God's plan that Jesus would be crucified and you, a wicked man, crucified him. Well, hold on. I thought, who did this? Did God do it? Yes. But a man did it too, and he was wicked for it. Both ex- and God didn't make him do, a sin- do something wicked either. God decrees everything, yet we are completely responsible for our sin. You see that? It's a paradox. It was decreed, yet the ones who crucified him were wicked. They were used by God, and it was decreed to happen, yet it was still their wicked choice. You you might say, I don't like this whole kind of predetermined stuff, that God decrees things, and things are kind of outside my control. If you're saying that, you're probably not thinking. (laughs) No offense. If you're saying that, you're probably not thinking. Let me explain why. Okay, I I don't think a lot too, so don't worry. If, If we're really thinking this, it's very comforting. In times of suffering. Now just follow me. God is in control, yet we must act. It's, 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 not, it's not either or. It's both. Now one writer makes this point, and this is really interesting. If it's either or, we'll either be passive, right? Well, you know, God's determined it, so why go take medicine? It's just going to, whatever's going to happen in life. You get like this despair, this fatalism type of thing. If it's that, then, you know, we're just going to be passive. Nothing I do matters anyway. Or we're, if, if, if it's all up to us and our choices, we're going to be scared to get to death every single moment of life. Because if we make the wrong choice, if we go left instead of right, if we choose A instead of B, it could, we could be toast. But if God providentially guides us, if he works us, even in our mistakes, then that, that brings us great, great hope. We're neither passive nor terrified. And that's what we see right in the Apostle Paul. Do we get passive? Do we give up? Do we get scared to death? Friends, God has called us in the storm to rise up, right? To believe, to work, but to ultimately trust in his directive power. Amen? Thirdly, there's a companion in the storm. This is what we can see here. That should bring us great comfort in the trials of life. Number three, the companion in the storm. This is our third observation that I can make, is to note the companion Paul had in the storm, the angel of God, shows up. Last night, it says in verse 23, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And friend, I could say a million different things about this, but let me just say this simply to you. If you are a believer in Christ... In good times or in bad times, the Lord Jesus Christ is by your side. Always. That is the good promise of God in all of your suffering and trial, that he is with you. And the way in which 
we tap into his peace and joy in trial is to be present with him. You know what I mean? You ever, have you ever been with someone, but they're not with you? They're like, oh, yeah, what did you say? Oh, good, your mom, what did, she went to Tahiti? Oh, oh huh? Oh. Right? So, so you're with them, but they're not with you. We could do that to God. We do that to God all the time. We're not with him. And when, when we're not with him, especially in trial, we end up in a frenzy. So we gotta, we got to put the iPhone down and be with him. we got to start our day on our knees. we gotta, we got to meditate daily. Every, we don't have a pass as Christians. We are too weak in our flesh to think that we can neglect three, four, six days at a time, weeks at a time, without meditating on the wonderful promises of Christ. If you treat your Christianity like that, it's going to train wreck you. You're going to drift. It's going to be something that's very light or, or not very important. And then when tough times come, you're not going to know what to do. You're not going to know how to handle it. So we need to practice the presence of God. Wonderful little book, um, classic book called Practice the Presence of God. But we need to practice the presence of God. We need to wake up in his presence, aware of his presence, paying, paying attention to him. Because he's there. Whether you're suffering or not, he's there. God has made, isn't this interesting? Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve, stood beside me. You see what Paul's saying? He's reminding himself of the gospel. I belong to God. Why? I'm his child. I'm adopted into his family because of the work of Jesus Christ. He's identifying himself with his maker and his creator. You see that? He's not on his own. He's not thinking, well, this is up to my intelligence or ingenuity. He knows who he belongs to. He's reminding himself that in spite of the storms, he's a, chi a child of God and that nothing will separate him from the love of Christ. Right? So that's what he's doing. I belong, I know to whom I belong, to whom I serve. He stood beside me. Paul knew he belonged to God. He was among God's covenant people because he had believed in Jesus as his substitute. His sins were forgiven. He knew this. He was grafted into God's family. And friend, if you put faith in Christ, God has made a covenant with you, a promise with you that cannot change, that nothing can change. Because God never changes his mind, and he is the one who is all, has all power that no one can interrupt his plan for you. Period. So you'll always be his adopted child. You'll always have the guarantee of eternal hope and home. You'll always have the privilege of having, being a co-heir with Christ. No matter what the, what the trouble. And friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, what's better than that? Put it down. Whatever it is that you're holding on to, that you think is better, it's not, friend. Trust in Christ. Put it down. Put your faith in him. Paul's gospeling himself. I belong to him. Not a hair on my head will be harmed. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. Jesus said that. Remember? But some of you will die. Okay, so obviously he means a different sort of hair, doesn't he? Not a hair on your head will be harmed. This ceiling could come down and crush me to smithereens, and you would have me no more in this life, and God promise, promises me not a hair on my head will be harmed. You want to know why? It's the same thing that Jesus told Martha. I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes and lives in me will 
never die. That's the hope. And that's going to give you joy even if you walk with a limp your whole life. Amen? Praise God. Keep up your courage. Have faith in God that it will happen just as he told us. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. Oh, we thank you for your promises, God. We pray, Lord, that we would never put any undue pressure on ourselves. The pressure to live up to someone's, someone else's expectations that aren't your expectations. God, the way that we demean ourselves and our self-esteem is crushed because of maybe mistakes we've made or missed opportunities. But God, your word says that in Christ you are pleased with us every day that you applaud our presence, that you love us like this. So God, in this new year ahead of us, would you help us to live like this, to live out the victories of life and the storms of life, always under these guiding principles. Lord, that you have made a promise to us, that you are absolutely in control, and that you are always with us. So God, bless us this new year. Bless this wonderful church. Bless the people who aren't with us this morning who are maybe sick or traveling. Or I, I just pray that you bless us as a, as a church this coming year to live our faith together well, to know each other's names, to know each other's burdens, to lift them for each other. I pray, God, that we would be friends with each other, that we would be good friends. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to work out our differences, to repent and to forgive, to be kind and gracious. I pray, Lord, that this coming year we would see many people come to know the hope of Jesus Christ, to know that whether life is good or difficult, or that they have an adoption. I pray that you would use us to that end, that we would see... Um, People more and more people come and sent to the ends of the earth. Lord, that you would grant us the grace of um, seeing people birthed um, by faith to Jesus Christ and baptized and becoming leaders and missionaries. God, we thank you for this unique privilege. We thank you for your word that you have spoken to us through your word that it's powerful, that it never changes. And it's in you we put our hope. And God, we just ask if there's anyone here tonight, or this morning rather, that doesn't know you, that's never put faith in Jesus Christ, we ask, Lord, that whatever it is that they're holding on to this moment, that they would put it down, and that they would trust in you, that they would come with empty hands, depending on the death and resurrection of your Son, to die for their sins in their place. And if that's you, friend, oh, be baptized. Proclaim your faith through baptism. And just come and let me know so that I can rejoice with you. God, we just love you. We thank you so much for this, this wonderful day and this uh, great new year. In Jesus' name, amen.